Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, July 20th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We are joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore national security imperatives for our nation. Listeners to our show know we often talk about the tools of national power. Those tools include diplomatic, informational, military, and economic power, and how a nation uses those tools is the art and science of statecraft. Today we'll be focusing on issues linked directly to American economic security. We know economic security is, in fact, national security, and we'll dive into some very important economic issues today. To help us to better understand these issues, we're joined today by Dr. Anthony Becker, who is a professor of economics at St. Olaf College, where he has been on the faculty since 1987. Dr. Becker received his Bachelor of Arts with honors in economics from the University of Maryland and his master's and doctorate in economics from Duke University. His research areas include trade and agricultural commodities, public sector economics, and antitrust. In addition to his position at St. Olaf, Tony has been a visiting professor at Middlebury College and at the National University of Costa Rica. He frequently collaborates in his research with his wife, Rebecca Judge, who is also a professor of economics at St. Olaf. In addition to his scholarly work, Dr. Tony Becker also works as an expert witness testifying to economic damages in civil cases in both federal and state courts. Dr. Tony Becker, welcome to National Security This Week. Well, thanks for having me on the show, John. Really appreciate it. I, I, we we are having a little a banter out there in the uh, waiting room before we stepped in here. You've had a, a busy summer, it sounds like. <laughs> I have, um, yeah, and it's not letting up, but it's uh, it's fun busy. And you're getting ready for uh, fall classes now, I take it. Yeah, I'm doing a little revision of some classes and uh, looking at some new ways to approach the material I teach. So you know, it just keeps it fresh for me, and that keeps it fresh for the students. That's the important thing. Uh, Dr. Becker, you are a distinguished economist, but I'd like to start our discussions today with some basics to kind of lay the foundations for more advanced topics. Uh, these questions, I think, are going to aid our understanding of the situation we, we are in economically as we get deeper into the show. Uh, I've heard, I hear people use these terms interchangeably, uh, budget deficit and national debt. Those two things are very, very different. Could you explain the difference between those two and why it's important to understand that difference? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the budget deficit is the difference between, in the federal government case, the, the amount of money that comes in, tax revenue primarily, uh, and expenditures on an annual basis. So when we say the budget deficit is uh, $400 billion, uh, that means the government took in $400 billion less than it spent. The difference needs to be made up with borrowing. That borrowing then contributes to the national debt. It, you, we could call it the national indebtedness. How much uh, in total does the government owe? Um, one thing that's important to think about, um, you often hear, uh, especially from 
uh, governors, state governors, talking about how they've balanced their budget every year. Um, and and every time you, you do that, you should just sort of shake your head and, and, <laughs> and say, well, the reason they do that is they're constitutionally required to. Right. Um, and the other thing is state government budgets work much differently from the federal government. Uh, we in Minnesota always hear about these special sessions for bonding bills. Well, that's off the main budget for uh, a state government, but for a federal government, that would be uh, part of the routine budget. Um, so in other words, the federal government in the United States is is actually unique, well, rather rare worldwide. We don't separate capital expenditures from sort of operating expenditures like state governments do and local governments do as well. And as I understand it, as that uh, as the budget deficits, mm-hmm. uh, I mean they're they're huge, right? So we add that onto the national debt, uh, and then we pay interest on the national debt to the borrower, to the people we've borrowed from. We do, yeah. So one of the concerns about the national debt is the amount of interest payments that the government has to make. Uh, that's referred to as the maintenance on the debt. Uh, how much, you know, and, and you can think about that, you know, if, if you've got a mortgage or something, uh, the interest payments on that are the maintenance on that debt. And you also, of course, with a mortgage, you have to pay the principal. Um, what the uh, federal government is able to do is to roll over the principal uh, but it still needs to be making the uh, interest payments roll over the principal by by engaging in in just new borrowing. So that debt maintenance number, whatever that is, from year to year, maybe from month to month, because it's going to keep mm-hmm. going up and up. That's taking money from discretionary spending in the actual budget each year, or how does that work? It it really would. Yeah, that that has to be uh, an item that the federal government budgets for a certain amount of debt maintenance. We've been very lucky um, since uh, the financial crisis of 08 that interest rates have been at um, historic lows. Uh, that makes the maintenance on the debt rather low, rather small. Um, right now, with the uh, Federal Reserve uh, bumping up interest rates, that's going to increase the maintenance on the debt. It's going to put some pressure on the federal budget. Um, but other um, other indicators are that you know revenues are coming in at you know faster paces than they were a couple uh, two years ago, certainly, uh, and that's going to uh, alleviate that a little bit. But I think um, I think it's it's got to be a concern for fiscal policy people to uh, worry about the maintenance on the debt. And, and let me ask you one other question on the on the debt issue. Uh, I mean, you're a very experienced economist. Do, do we need to be worried about the size of our national debt? Is that a, is that a serious concern, or does it sort of just come out in the wash later on? Well, you know, Harry Truman said he wanted to find a one-handed economist who who wouldn't say <laughs> on the other hand. Um, you know, you can you can be concerned about it or you can not be concerned about it. Um, what a lot of people, a lot of economists will do is they'll look at the national debt relative to the size of the overall economy. People talk about the debt as a per- percentage of gross domestic product. Um, by that measure, um, there's a little concern. Our, our national debt has been going up rather relative to our gross domestic product. On the other hand, Compared to a lot of the other industrialized democracies, um, we're we're not that far. We're not out of line. Mm. Um, some countries are much higher uh, in terms of their national debt to to GDP ratios, and uh, so I think um, 
I don't think it's a problem for us right now. Um, I, you know, and and certainly we've had some time in the last. Uh, well, the the current administration has been uh, uh, fortunate to be able to bring down the federal deficit, which means we're adding less to the national debt. The economy is growing, so that that helps our our position. Okay. So we've seen the the stock market take a rather significant tumble this year. Uh, is that a normal correction, considering the market has been really on on an unbelievable run for the past decade, or, or are the headwinds facing the global economy suddenly weighing down the markets and shareholders have been taking profits, hiding them under their mattresses for stable times ahead? I mean, what, what do you think is going on here? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly as uh, you know, if if you're if you're close to retirement, uh, if you uh, rely on, uh, you know, your earnings, uh, or if you're in retirement, you rely on your earnings for, you know, your your, uh, your income uh, from a, a retirement program or something like that. Uh, it's, it's a serious concern that the market's uh, taken a, a fairly substantial uh, downturn. I mean, it, we're... Um, I can't remember exactly, but we're off. Uh, I think about twenty percent from the peak of uh, you know a few months ago. Yeah, um, we are, of course, from the pre-pandemic peak. Um, so February of twenty, we're still up uh, in the, talking about the S and P five hundred. We're still up over fifteen percent, uh, which is you know what that's about. Yeah, seven eight percent rate of return, which is, is, is not bad. I mean, that's just in the index itself. Um, but of course we're, we're down a lot from the, from the peak we hit, you know, a little while ago. Um, you know, it's the stock market has a lot of volatility and I think we just have to accept that. And that, um, there are, there are a lot of activities going on. A lot of, a lot of things go into that, that have to do with, uh, expectations, um, corporate earnings and uh, people's expectations for corporate earnings as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I expect it, it seems at least over the last little bit, um, the uh, quote unquote bear market has subsided some. Yeah. Uh, we've got a little recovery going on in, in the market indices. And so, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who can predict the stock market. If they could, they yeah. they wouldn't be in a in a radio studio. They'd be out <laughs> predicting the stock market. <laughs> so I, I mean, inflation has been kind of run away uh, a little bit l- lately. Uh, and I and you said volatility in the markets. Do you think inflation is having in, an impact on people's uh, concerns about the markets? And that's one of the reasons why there's been a sell off. Or yeah, I think um, you know, especially when you look at the popular indices of consumer confidence, they're way down, yeah. which with a 3.6% unemployment rate, you'd, uh, you'd kind of scratch your head and go, well, why are people, you know, and, and yeah. the economy, you know, job creation numbers are really good. Uh, unemployment is is really low. Why are people worried? Um, and I think, you know, you you get this this view of the, the declining stock market indices from that, that peak, uh, and then you get the inflation numbers, which you know are hitting people in in some very real and visible ways. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you look at and I, I'm I'm a bit uh, nerdy about this. Uh, <laughs> okay. it, it's part of my job. I mean, one of my one of my areas is um, looking at what's called uh, time series analysis, and so I, I like to get into the details of a lot of the macroeconomic numbers. Um, but you know the some of the big 
things that have uh, hit, created the inflation problem uh, are big jumps in food and energy prices. Yeah. Um, you know, so energy prices, uh, the latest consumer price index data, uh, energy prices uh, year over year up, uh, you know, sort of as an aggregate up over 40%. Yeah. Uh, food up over 10%. And and so we're we're noticing that, you know, when, when you go to the gas station, though, fortunately, prices seem to be coming down right now. But, um, you know, very easy to, um, you know, you were used to be putting forty dollars into the tank and now you're putting 60 to 70 dollars into the tank. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's a very visible thing. And I think people are going to react to that because it, it has a real impact on their lives. Um, you know, there. So there are. Um, you know, a number of these very visible sectors that are going up, that are driving the inflation, uh, some of them might abate, some of them might not. I mean, you, I guess we kind of have to see how it shakes out. I think that's probably true <laughs> with, yeah. with all economic cycles. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we mentioned the word inflation. We're facing strong inflation right now. I think it was over 9% in June. Uh, in, in your view, what, what has caused the inflation to spike so rapidly? Has it been the sustained global market pressures uh, from COVID-19 supply chain interruptions that maybe now combined with the global supply chain and commodity disruptions from the Russia invasion of Ukraine? Or is it something embedded in U.S. economic policy that is causing this spike? I mean, you, you just mentioned macroeconomics. That's an area you look at. What, what do you think is really causing this on a, uh, for America and then a, on a global scale? Right. Well, I think we've got um, we've got a number of things. And I think, you know, looking at it on a global scale is informative because, you know, we're not alone in, in seeing very high rates of inflation. And as you mentioned, yes, over over nine percent year over year in the consumer price index. Um, probably worth mentioning also just very briefly that the Federal Reserve, when they target inflation, they look at a different index. They don't look at the CPI or consumer price index at uh, most people pay attention to, and people pay attention to the CPI because, for instance, if you ha are on, uh, you know, if your if your contract has a cost of living adjustment or your Social Security has cost of living adjustment, that's usually based on the CPI. But uh, there's a different index called the PCE. It's, it has to do with personal consumption expenditure, uh, and that's what the Fed watches. And the PCE index was up six point three percent, I believe, year over year. Uh, last time it was published, which was May, uh, the the June numbers are not out yet, but um, but even so, um, you know we've got a number of causes here. Um, you know, COVID COVID can't be discounted, both in terms of its effect on the global supply chain and its effect on some of our domestic industries. Yeah. Uh, industries, you know, for example. Um, a lot of uh, food processing industries got hit really hard uh, by COVID, uh, having to maybe shut down some factories and having difficulty uh, with, um, you know, worker absenteeism because of COVID and so forth. And that happened right here in Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so when, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I noticed at the grocery store and the national figures confirmed it, uh, you know, poultry and beef and pork prices were way up. And yeah. a lot of it had to do with COVID related disruptions in the processing industries. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of it. Uh, shipping was affected. Um, and uh, China also had huge shutdowns. And so much 
so many of our consumer goods are uh, produced in uh, in China uh, that had uh, you know that that sort of disruption uh, also caused some uh, run-ups in prices, and then I think we uh, and do we, do know. we see that happening right now because China is still in lockdowns in different parts of their country to deal with COVID, and that's just still disrupting the supply chains. It, it seems chains. it seems to be you know still disrupting a bit. Um, I think you know things like uh, some of the electronics and computer chip shortages have abated a little bit. Not not a I mean, the computer chips, we have got domestic production. We've also got production in uh, Taiwan and Korea as well. Mm -hmm. But all of that is going to tie in. uh, And that, you know, so, for example, if you want to get really nitpicky about some of the increases in prices, uh, you look at, you know, the prices of new cars way up year over year. And a lot of that is because there are chip shortages. And so, you know, the new cars uh, are you're basically driving a, a computer right. down the road. Um, and uh, yeah, so when you can't get chips, yeah, so new vehicles are up almost 12 percent, you know, and, and year over year. And that that's just because of, you know, shortages along the supply chain. I think we also can't discount, um, you know, a couple things, especially in energy prices, Um Sort of towards uh, the end of the administration, the Trump administration uh, negotiated. I'm I'm not exactly sure why with the Saudis and OPEC to reduce uh, reduce production, and uh, you know so we had a reduction in production. Then you get the supply chain things in the United States. Uh, if you start looking at oil refining in the United States, we're still down from pre-pandemic levels because. When the pandemic hit and a lot of people stopped commuting, gasoline demand dropped way down, oil refineries shut down, uh, a lot of production, they still haven't ramped back up. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's part of it there. But I think in terms of the global price, uh, we've had some, uh, you know, so some reductions in the global price. Um, you've also got to factor in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, that, you know, various disruptions there, pipeline disruptions, supply disruptions, sanctions on Russia and affecting the, the global prices. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's all sort of hitting at once. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a good bit of it. A perfect storm of complexity. Yes, I think, <laughs> I think so. I'm glad you you talked a little bit about sort of the energy situation with Russia, uh, which I want to come back to in just a minute. But for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Becker from the College of St. Olaf, and we're discussing economic drivers impacting American national security. Uh, so, Dr. Berger, let's talk a little bit more about that situation in Ukraine, if we could. A few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now, uh, the European Union announced a $220 billion euro plan to wean themselves almost completely off Russian oil and gas. Uh, here in the United States, early in the Russian invasion, American public opinion was pretty solidly on the side of accepting greater uh, market prices for oil and gas and even other commodities, uh, food stocks, etc., uh, if it meant punishing the Russians for having carried out that invasion. But that opinion poll is starting to 
kind of inch its way down as the economic uh, challenges are hitting our, our population. A majority of Americans uh, now actually, I think it's 51 percent, stating that they have greater concerns for our own economic well-being, even if it means sacrificing Ukraine's ability to stand against the Russians. For me, as a national security professional, uh, I look around the world and oil, gas and coal seem to be sort of the major profitable commodities for autocratic nations like Russia, Iran, Venezuela and others. And fossil fuels clearly serve as a, as funders for the undemocratic nations ruled by strongmen. They use those funds. Uh, they build militaries, subjugate their population and solidify their power. Corruption is, is the norm in a lot of these places. As an economist, right? So now just talking about economics. Uh, how do you look at this situation with global supply chain of fossil fuels uh, amongst the liberal democracies or the the autocratic nations, you know, the, sort of the, the strong men nations? What opportunities do you see for America and our allies and, and even our friends around the world, all things considered on this particular issue? Sure. So, um, I, know, I like asking, you know, easy questions. Yeah, right? short questions. <laughs> short answer to that question. Um, so... You know, I think one of the things we have to um, remember is that, you know, whether we ramp up production in uh, fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, um, is is not going to insulate us from world conditions. Um, if you want an example, look at Norway. They produce 10 times more oil than they produce. Uh, they consume 10 times more oil than they produce. No, wait, the other way around. They produce 10 times more than they consume. Sorry about that. Um, and they're not insulated from yeah. global ups and downs. And, you know, in Minnesota here, we produce, uh, well, we're part of the production in the United States that produces a lot more corn, a lot more soybeans, a lot more wheat than we consume domestically in the United States. But global prices still affect our domestic prices because if you have uh, a train car load of corn, same as you have a train car load of oil, if the global price is higher than your domestic price, you're going to sell on the world market, not sell on the domestic market. And so the only way to really insulate the uh, a country from world prices is to either have domestic price controls or as uh, a country where I've done some research in Argentina does, they tax exports. Um, and those export taxes are really unpopular with the producers. Right. They're popular with the consumers yeah. um, because it keeps the domestic price lower than the world price sort of insulates. So, Does that mean that they have a kind of a glut of supply in the country because it's more, it's beneficial financially to the producer to keep it in the country so the price stays low? Is that how that works? They have more supply domestically than they would have without those okay. export taxes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, so, so that's, you know, that's, that's one part. Now, in terms of what opportunities we have as a country, uh, well, one of the things we've been doing, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners remember the, uh, oil, uh, embargoes in the 1970s. Uh, I remember the 1977 one distinctly because I had, uh, a job working at a gas station, pumping gas, uh, back when, <laughs> back when that was something people did, uh, apart from doing it on their own. But um, those, those oil price shocks in the uh, early 70s, late 70s, um, were very damaging to our economy because our economy at the time was much more energy dependent than it is now. 
um, in, in terms of the amount of oil that it took us to produce a dollar of GDP, we're, we're doing much better now. And, and so if we can uh, continue the transformation of our economy away from these global commodities, um, you know, increase uh, reliance on electrification, especially if that electricity is not from uh, natural gas, um, you know, if it's uh, renewables, you know, or hydro, solar, wind, and so on, um, we're going to then, that's what's going to get us to be more insulated from these, these global shocks. And, and yes, the, um, a lot of the uh, major producers, um, you know, certainly a lot of the OPEC nations are not, uh, you know, paragons of democracy. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, I think um, a lot of uh, autocratic nations have uh, been able to use uh, these uh, internationally traded commodities as a way of, uh, you know, enriching themselves and so forth and, and maintaining you know, they're some of their domestic control as well. Um, but, you know, we also do have, you know, uh, the U.S. is one of the, if not the largest producer of oil in the world. We happen to consume almost all of it internally. Canada produces a lot. Uh, Britain and Norway produce a lot from the North Sea. So there are examples of, uh, you know, major liberal democracies producing uh, substantial amounts of these uh, fossil fuels as well. Um you know, the, the fossil fuel thing and uh, the Ukrainian war, of course, are tied together. Yeah, clearly. Um, and, uh, you know, part of, um, you know, part of uh, the sort of fortunes of the Russian economy go up and down with the global price of oil. And right now, uh, ru- price of oil is relatively high, coming down a little bit, which is great for us as, as consumers and for our inflation situation. Um it it's bad for Russia yeah. uh, because they're already having to discount their oil because of sanctions to get people to buy it. Uh, and so then if, if, if prices drop further, then they'll still have to be discounting and there it's going to put, put a squeeze on them. Let me, let me ask, let me ask a yeah. follow up question on that for, for the Russian oil uh, specifically. I seem to recall back in like the 2013, 14, maybe even 15 timeframe, Saudi Arabia was sort of bucking OPEC's designs, and they were really producing a lot of oil. And it was targeted at, at bringing down the price of oil kind of internationally. And the way I saw it was that was a time when Russia was investing heavily in Iran. Iran is uh, clearly not a good friend of Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of jockeying for regional uh, hegemony between those two countries. And the way Saudi Arabia may have looked at it is if they can bring the price of oil down, they make it far more costly for Russia to make those kind of investments in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's tapered off. You mentioned earlier that uh, Saudi Arabia reduced capacity, reduced production uh, just a few years ago. So uh, do you see those kinds of things playing out right now where there's an opportunity to further punish Russia with sanctions if they are, the sanctions would do more damage to Russia if OPEC started to produce a lot more oil in the near term? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not certainly um, well versed in, in Saudi internal decision making. <laughs> um, but I do remember um, that time you're referring to when there was a lot more production coming out of uh, Persian Gulf region. 
Uh, And I should add that they were driving down the overall price of oil to make it even more costly for, say, uh, you know, production out of North Dakota. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, a lot of U.S. production uh, was slowed or halted because the price of oil was low enough that it wasn't profitable. Yeah, fracking becomes uh, cost prohibitive below a certain yeah, price yeah, per yeah, barrel. Yeah, and, and I don't know what the the current figure is, but you know, suppose you've got uh, you know fifty dollar production costs in 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 fracking in in North Dakota, and you get the world price down around fifty five dollars. It's it's probably not worth it. Um, the other thing is Russia has reasonably high production costs, especially relative to the Saudis. The Saudis have very low production costs per barrel of oil. And uh, so I think, um, you know, and and also the history of OPEC has been sometimes uh, certain members uh, try to uh, produce more than their quotas and the Saudis act as almost an enforcement mechanism uh, because when they produce more than the world price drops and and these other countries that have higher production costs uh, certainly suffer disproportionately. And uh, so they may have been aiming that a little bit at uh, the Iranians or a little bit at the Russians. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say, and, and certainly I'm not an expert on that. You need somebody who, who follows that market more closely. But it certainly had that effect. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was very damaging to the Russian economy when the price fell yeah. uh, because they lost a lot of international exchange, foreign exchange. And I'd like to stay on Russia again for the for this next question. You know, we're five months essentially into the Russian invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine. Of Ukraine, sanctions I think are, from everything I've been reading, are biting into the Russian economy pretty good now. Uh, the AP News ran a story a little while ago highlighting that all all of the different multinational corporations that pulled out of Russia as a result of this, uh, some even tried to keep paying their Russian employees. That, that shows pretty good uh, loyalty to your people. But even McDonald's finally announced that they were leaving Russia permanently. They, they sold their assets in Russia to a Russian buyer, and that chain has now reopened under a new name. I, I, I've heard reports that the fries don't, ta- don't taste the same. Uh, so how do these disruptions to the Russian economy play out over time? I mean, how bad will things get inside Russia with, with so much of the world, the liberal democracies mostly, because China and India and some of the others are really not uh, playing by the rules here. Uh, they're, they're not shunning Russia as completely as the liberal democracies are. And then how is it possible that the Russian ruble has actually gotten stronger under sanctions than it was before the war started? Okay, so um, yeah, let's, question. Let, let's let's talk about the Russian economy. I mean, my my best um, prediction is that the longer these sanctions stay on, the longer the more damage it's going to be to the Russian economy. Um, they're already facing uh, serious shortages of of parts um, and components for uh, production and equipment they have. I mean, think about. Uh, their airliners. Most of their airliners are Boeing or Airbus. Right. Uh, they can't get spare parts. Um, <laughs> what they're doing, of course, is they're refusing to return aircraft that were on lease. Uh, most airlines actually lease their aircraft. They don't own them. Uh, and there, I was reading a story the other day about an Irish company that uh, is one of the biggest aircraft leasing companies. Russia has hundreds of their aircraft and will not give them back. Uh, and now these aircraft cannot fly internationally, but they can fly domestically. And my guess is what they're going to be doing is they're going to be, um, you know, salvaging 
uh, these aircraft. Uh, it's going to be a real problem for these leasing agencies because, you know, you if, if the sanctions are ever listed, lifted, if they can ever go back in and get these aircraft, they might have all sorts of parts missing and you won't know what the maintenance has been and you're not going to know if they're airworthy or not. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to be huge hugely problematic but for the russian economy you know just in air transportation it's their their whole their whole market is 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 starting to implode mm-hmm. um in addition there because of sanctions they can't fly internationally that much um and and i think in other productive sectors as well especially where they're reliant on uh foreign components if they're reliant on uh any sort of uh us eu technology uh, they're going to be in, in serious trouble. Um, so that's, um, that's their production, uh, problem. And, and I think that's going to keep biting, uh, the financial sanctions are also problematic for them because it's preventing a lot of international, uh, investment flows and without, uh, foreign investment, uh, there it's going to be troubling, um, now, why is the ruble strong? Right. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of great, um, great ruble jokes coming from the old Soviet era about you know the runaway inflation and things and so forth. But uh, now we have strength in the ruble. So where did that come from? Well, part of it is how the Russian central bank is reacting to the sanctions. So you mentioned that McDonald's sold off to uh, a, a Russian partner. Yeah, they did. Uh, and a lot of companies have done that, but they can't get the money out of Russia because the Russian bank, central bank, won't allow people to convert rubles, you know, pull rubles out of the country and convert them. So uh, a lot of, um, you know, foreign entities that are selling off their assets are having to do it at deep discounts or they're... Um, their sale proceeds or their previous profits are getting stranded in Russia. And so they're not... Sounds like a tax write-off to me. (laughs) Yeah, it probably will be, yeah, Um, depending on how long it lasts. Um, So you've got um, a lot of these what are called capital controls that is uh, restricting the international flow of capital uh, that the uh, Russian Central Bank has been very zealous about. And uh, that's actually forcing the the price of rubles up and then you couple it with Russia still exporting gas and oil right and they're demanding that payments for that be made in rubles wow. and so you've um you've got a lot of uh, foreign companies str- having the rubles stranded in Russia and then you've got people who are still buying Russian gas and oil having to obtain rubles to pay for these things they used to be able to pay in in euros or dollars and now they can't uh so that's that's forcing up the demand for the ruble and uh, now the russian uh, central bank has relaxed some of these capital controls a little bit because they want to keep i think the ruble at more historic levels right now it's uh at about 50 to the dollar which is is rather high uh it had been you know sort of cruising at around 70 um to the dollar and I think they'd like to get it kind of back there uh, because it does whatever imports they can get. When their currency is stronger, it makes the imports more expensive for right. them. Yeah. Uh, so that's 
I'm, I'm sorry, it makes their, their exports more expensive uh, for foreigners, which is further damages their economy. Yeah, and, and, and we hear the same thing when we hear, well, the, dro- the dollar is really strong on the international right. uh, front. That's actually worse for us from an exports. It is. For our exports, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the strong dollar, you know, has this psychological thing. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. The dollar's uh, really strong against the euro. I mean, what, the dollar and the euro are about equal right now, which is, is um, pretty surprising. It was uh, twenty to buy a euro not long ago. Um, but, yeah, it does hurt our exports. Um, on the other hand, uh, it is going to help our inflation situation, sort of circling back to that, uh, because if you think about oil uh, and other international commodities, they're priced in dollars. Hmm. And But the demand is based on a lot of people who have euros. And so the price of those commodities, when the dollar gets stronger relative to world economy, world uh, other world currencies the price of those commodities generally drops when measured in dollars and so that'll help us a little bit in that regard too but yeah the strong dollar makes imports cheaper for us makes exports uh more expensive for people outside the country so that's that that could impact our our economy's production but um there may be some side effects on inflation that'll be good for us so I want to move to a, a topic that uh, that you know quite a bit about, and that's uh, the agricultural sector. Uh, you've spent a good bit of your career studying that. We know Ukraine has been called the breadbasket of the world, right? That's That's been around for a long time. They grow so much wheat, and they export that wheat all around the world, but especially to Africa, the Middle East, and, and even to Europe. Russia has also been a major supplier of wheat. Uh, both nations also supply a lot of corn and soybeans, and, and Ukraine has sort of specialized in sunflower seeds. Uh, war has clearly disrupted the opportunity for many Ukrainian farmers to plant, and, and even doing so might be a little hazardous because of unexploded ordnance in their fields or even mines that have been left behind by Russian forces. Uh, the Ukrainian agricultural commodities are also stuck in port. We've heard that quite a bit lately uh, on, on the coastal cities. Those, uh, those cities are being blockaded by the Russian Navy and the Black Sea. Uh, additionally, Russian agricultural commodities are being sanctioned. Uh, which means even less of these commodities, corn, soybean, and wheat, are available for for global distribution amongst all nations. You mentioned earlier that oil is getting out of Russia, oil and gas commodities are getting out of Russia as well. They're being snapped up by some of these other countries like China. So here's the key question. What opportunities exist right now for American farmers, especially here in our region in the upper central Midwest, uh, because of of the disruption of the agriculture supply chain from Russia and Ukraine? Okay. Well, um, you know, I think if, if I had uh, corn and, and soy um, in the field right now and it, it was doing pretty well, I'd be pretty happy as a, a Minnesota farmer. Uh, prices, are, prices are pretty high. They've, they've actually been uh, high for the, the past, um, oh, I guess about a year and a half or so. I mean, really, it, it, a lot of it seems to have coincided with the pandemic. Um, but uh yeah the the prices are high and i think um you might see you know depending on relative prices uh you know corn is up about double from what it was uh, a couple of years ago uh wheat is up quite a lot soybeans up as well um and all of that is is no doubt good for minnesota farmers and it has to do with what the global prices have been and um so what what kind of opportunities are there? Um, well, you know, I think um, 
you know, certainly the farmers are going to get, it seems to be, they're going to get fairly good prices this year. Um, you know, the, um, Ukraine and Russia, uh, their, their production is, is substantial, but where, where it really has the effect is their, the Ukrainian, uh, production worldwide may not be you know, as as huge as the United States, but the amount of their stuff that is in the world market, the amount that they export is very large. And so when you talk about what's the global price, you, you need to look at the amount of this these commodities in world trade. And if you take away, uh, you know, 20, 30% of the wheat in global trade, you're going to get a big price impact. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, th- and that's having... Uh, particularly strong effects on uh, a lot of uh, nations in uh, in in Africa particularly um, where they're they've been uh, very dependent on Ukrainian exports of wheat and then with there not being a lot of substitutes from from Russia also being sanctioned uh, then you're looking at having to uh, import from some of the other major producers um, Argentina, Brazil, Australia, United States, um, in terms Canada as well. So, if you're a country like Egypt, which has relied very, very heavily on Ukrainian wheat mm-hmm. uh, imports into into Egypt, uh, those shorter supply lines suddenly aren't open. So, importing things from the United States or Argentina or elsewhere that becomes even more expensive, and there's less available on the market as a whole. So the price goes up. Uh, I know that Egypt right now is is really concerned about wheat because they rely so heavily on bread as a staple of their diet. Right. And yeah, and I, I've, I've heard that they are very concerned and, you know, you could get easily get, um, uh, some, some very difficult policy questions for the Egyptian government to deal with when, uh, they have to replace the, uh, Ukrainian wheat with wheat from, let's say Canada. And it's, you know, instead of being, you know, essentially, let's say $4, it's it's now 7 or $8. Right. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them, I think. And I'll follow up on that if I could. Um, I've seen some well, quite a few news reports over the last couple of months of uh, there are countries around the world that are actually saying we are not going to export some of our food products. We're actually going to contain them only in our country because we're really concerned about food shortages on a global scale, and we want to make sure we don't run into those problems. We've seen that in Indonesia and some other countries that, that are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that concern you all as an economist looking at the global supply chain? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's production of staples um, that, you know, where you've got a country that's a major exporter, uh, then that would be a concern. Um, I think for, you know, much of the world, uh, a major staple is, is rice production. And that's, that's unaffected by, uh, what's going on with the, the current disruptions in Ukraine and so forth. Um, if we had, you know, bad weather that affected, especially Southeast Asia, um, where there's a, an awful lot of the rice production that, that could sort of, uh, tip things uh, a bit. But I, I think, you know, a lot of the countries saying, you know, we're going to stop our exports. They're, they're not necessarily the major exporters. So I, I don't know how much of an effect that is. But, you know, of course, it, 
you know, national governments need to be concerned about feeding their people. Right. And I think that's what they're doing. Um, I don't I don't see our country doing anything even remotely like that. No, um, no. We we like exporting food and yeah. I think we're going to keep on doing it. So, Dr. Barber, uh, let's put you in the position where you could advise the Midwestern governors uh, and, and state legislatures mm-hmm. on improving agricultural policies uh, to create a more resilient ag sector in our region. Uh, what kind of policy recommendations might you have? Uh, would it be to rethink how supply chains work, perhaps shift back to a regional approach rather than this global market, a lot of just-in-time uh, supply systems, uh, maybe re- go back to a regional approach or overlapping regional supply chains so there's some resiliency built in? Uh, would you look at maybe fundamentally rethinking the incentive structure for uh, sort of defining what we grow and how we grow it or maybe recommend different incentives for improving farming practice to to require far less input costs, for instance, especially with fertilizers, just because that's a huge cost right now mm-hmm. because of Russia and, and, and Belarus being sanctioned. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think, um, th- I mean, there's no short-term fix. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I also, I also think, um, you know, I'm a, basically what's called a neoclassical microeconomist, um, which means, basically it means, a conventional uh, microeconomist, and so I I think that markets tend to do a good job, and and people respond to incentives, and I think uh, our farmers have um, generally responded to incentives fairly fairly quickly. Um, from a national perspective, I think maybe we want to uh, look at the next farm bill, and farm bills come out every six to eight years, depending on uh, Congress's. Uh, you know, ability to work together. One of the great, I mean, for for good or ill, it's it is always a bipartisan uh, exercise. <laughs> yeah. The farm bill. Yeah. Uh, it's it's, you know, farm state Republicans, farm state Democrats always get together on the farm bill. But, um, so I think we have to look at the farm bill policies and see are there any policies in there which are, uh, dampening down, uh, if you will, innovation or not letting systems respond to global conditions. Um, so that's what I would say from a you know national perspective. From a regional perspective, um, what I think you know governors uh, and state legislators and so forth could could be looking at is uh, how do we get you know the really good research that's being done at places like the U of M and and other other schools. Um, I'm, I went to a land grant institution myself. Uh, with a big ag program, um, how do we get that research out there to make um, our farmers less reliant in their production on energy products? Yeah, uh, and 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 so what we're talking about here, of course, no-till has become much bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then also uh, there are some great research going on with uh, various cover crops or secondary crops that. Uh, greatly reduce, you know, and, and all these different practices that reduce the need for fertilizers. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, fertilizers are much more expensive uh, because it's it's highly dependent on the price of natural gas. Right. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, you know, the diesel to run those, those uh, tractors is not cheap. No. And uh, if you can get away with running the tractor over the land a couple times and you can reduce your need for fertilizer... 
not only are you going to make farms more profitable, uh, but you're also going to make farm costs less responsive to these global shocks in uh, energy prices. So I guess the key is as long as you're having the same production levels, if you can reduce costs in the input side, you're probably going to be, we're going to be much better off from a food production perspective, still keeping commodity prices low for, for food for us, but higher profits for the farmers because their input costs are less. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, the uh, sort of the, the net result of that is, um, yeah, that we'll probably get some slightly lower prices. Uh, farmers might have some slightly higher profitability um, that could depend on some other market factors as well, what's going on. Uh, but but it'll reduce some of the, the volatility in, in farm income, which I think would be a, a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we have about uh, 12 minutes left in the show. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Becker from the College of St. Olaf, and we're discussing economic drivers impacting American national security. Uh, so, Dr. Becker, I'd like to shift over to, to Asia and China specifically, if I could, for the last uh, 12 minutes or so of our show. Uh, how much of a mistake was it for the U.S. to pull out of uh, joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, as it was called? Uh, I know President Biden is now working to reinvigorate our opportunities to create a free trade agreement in the Pacific Basin. Uh, how might that play out against, uh, you know, the the regional comprehensive economic partnership, which is led by China, uh, that was created in the wake of TPP? TPP still exists, but China's uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership mm-hmm. is a is a pretty strong group. the The new free trade agreement that the Biden administration is trying to build is called the Indo Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, and we would create a, a kind of a bold new approach to free trade access across the Pacific and Indian Ocean basins. So two points there. Was it a mistake to pull out a TPP? And what do you think this new economic uh, agreement might might do for us? Well, in general, I, I, I mean, I guess I think uh, it was a mistake but to pull out a TPP because it, it sort of seeded the initiative uh, in regional, in Pacific regional trade to China, um, whereas we had... Uh, Negotiated, uh, I think, what was going to be a fairly good, uh, robust system uh, with our our major trading partners and and some new trading partners in that area. Uh, What I see the Biden administration doing, bringing in uh, the Indian Ocean areas as well. I mean, specifically, we're talking about bringing, for the most part, India into that, uh, is that um, to make, when when you make countries... Um, more interconnected, they're less likely to become, if you will, sort of problematic, um, I, I, I think. And I think, you know, it, openness uh, to trade is also a great uh, democratizing force. Um, and I, I think that's that's some of the initiative there. So, you know, I think this is a, a, a good idea to, um, you know, go with this um, Indo-Pacific economic framework. And, uh, you know, we'll just have to see how that goes. So I'm glad you brought up China, uh, U.S., and, and this interconnectedness that, that exists. I, I would say the U.S. and China are sort of deeply, almost irrevocably, economically interconnected with our trans-Pacific trade right now. If you take a look at what has happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you apply sort of a similar 
sanction structure on China should they invade Taiwan. That's the hypothesis, right? From your perspective as an economist, what should the U.S. be thinking about right now with regard to our supply chains that originate in China? Well, I think a lot of our corporations are worried about um, some Chinese uh, policies, especially about some of their, um, you know, policies, especially as they um, work around intellectual property uh, and innovation and so forth. And, you know, the requirement to have a Chinese partner turnover, um, you know, licensing rights and and so forth. Um, You know, China looks open and and looks capitalist but they are so far from a capitalist economy uh we have to remember that you know they're i mean it's sort of as i think about it, they like free trade once the goods are on the boat um <laughs> but they really um have huge state subsidies uh and some of those are explicit subsidies. Some of them are implicit. So, for example, you know, cheap electricity, cheap water or whatever, uh, lack of environmental controls. Um, and and then you have uh, huge state-owned industries where you really have to um, wonder sort of how much, you know, is that direct subsidy going on in these state-owned industries? Um, and it, it, various state agencies, you know, it could be the central party owns, it could be the, the you know, the... Uh, People's Liberation Army owns owns you know a share of this company and so forth, and and so all of those things are are what economists call distortionary. Okay, and um, you know I think you know one of the things that you know I think a lot of it are several of our administrations have been been aware of um, is uh, dealing with China's distortions and trying to pressure them to not distort so much. Um, I think it would be great if we can start moving some of the uh, some of our production to other countries. Um, you know, we've there's a lot of uh, production, you know, that had been in Taiwan that moved to mainland. Some of that may be moving back. A lot of production moving to Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Singapore, and so forth are also you know major trading partners and and great opportunities there. Uh, and I think you know in terms of uh, Boy, I don't know what the Chinese are going to do. They 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 love to saber rattle uh, about about Taiwan. Uh, it, it, I think you know encouraging U.S. firms to uh, be less dependent on Chinese production, China and China in their supply chain uh, is definitely going to be a good thing if something goes south there. So let me, let me ask you this, uh, because you're an economist uh, who studies this. There, is the reason why so much of American manufacturing production takes place in China, is that part of the U.S. tax code that we've incentivized offshoring of that? Or is it was it just a function of labor costs in America are so much higher than they were in China at the time that those decisions were made? I mean, what, what, what do you think was the driving factor that we ceded so much of that capability and put it in China? Yeah, I think it. I think it's primarily labor costs, and especially in manufacturing, and uh, you know, and and what that did is it transformed the U.S. economy into much more of a service economy as opposed to a goods economy. Um, but yeah, I think I think labor costs, and I, you know, I don't know how much of it is is really the tax code. Uh, if it's a U.S. firm, yeah, they can play some games with uh, foreign profits and so forth, but. Um, I think for the most part, it has to do with differentials in labor costs. 
from an economist perspective, uh, considering the disruptions to the global economy because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the huge amount of sanctions that were placed on Russia, should should we be taking direct steps right now as a U.S. government to incentivize the reshoring of industry back to America? Or is that is that a disruption to the global economy that probably wouldn't be a wise move? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think any reshoring uh, would by necessity be gradual and i don't think that would shock uh the system um you know if if it's some of the you know some of the production some some of the production that is is growing in the united states has to do with you know our domestic innovation and i think you know through innovation we can definitely reshore production but one of the things we have to realize is that you know if we if we lost an engine plant uh in you know the let's let's say Detroit area for example, if we were to reshore that engine plant, it would be a whole different thing. You know where it might have had five thousand workers, now it's going to have five hundred workers, and so we have to understand that the technology has changed. You know and and that when we bring uh, an industry back, it might be highly mechanized, highly robotic. Uh, it might be a whole different thing than what what left, and mm-hmm. so. You know, there's there's that consideration too. But you know, I'm I'm I think if if we can do domestic production, I think that's I think that's generally preferable. Other things being equal. Yeah, uh, that topic you were talking about the, the automation bomb. People have been talking about mm-hmm. that for a while now. The fact that uh, we're robotic systems uh, has has really given us the power to replace physical manual labor, human workers to a great extent. That sounds like a great topic for one of the public policy this week shows and sometime in the future. Dr. Berger, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, What haven't I asked you today that I should have asked you with regard to the the global economy, challenges we face here in the United States, or or more, maybe more importantly, potential opportunities over which we should try to take advantage right now in, in in the world? Oh, wow. That's a really close-ended question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, we touched on uh, everything from trade to exchange rates and uh, inflation. And, uh, you know, I, I I can't think of anything else right now, but sorry to, sorry to let you down on that. That's time. okay. That's okay. Economic security is national security, so it's always good to talk about these things. Uh, unfortunately, we've sort of reached the end of our show for today uh, for National Security This Week. Dr. Anthony Becker, thank you so much for joining us today. Are there any books, uh, magazines, podcasts you might recommend uh, to our listeners to further their knowledge and understanding about the topics we covered today? Anything you listen to or watch or read regularly? Well, um, I I tend to um like though i take sometimes with a grain of salt um paul krugman's blog uh because he is an international economist and uh he won the nobel prize so he he knows some things about (laughs) international economics um but he he does when he gets into his more wonky policy oriented work uh, he really does have some important things to say, I think, about international trade and international financial conditions. Uh, so I'd recommend that. I, you can sign up for it, I think, at the New York Times. Okay. And are you uh, hopeful or pessimistic about our economic opportunities in the near term, all uh, things considered? Generally hopeful. Okay. All right. 
Well, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Ninety-five point one. The One.